guys. All right, guys, welcome to the JPS podcast, the first episode with uh, the one and only Mr. Eric Helms. So for those of you who don't know who Eric is, you obviously have been living under a rock since the early 2000s. Uh, but Eric has been in the game since 2004, I believe. Eric? Yeah, I've been lifting since then. I think uh, I didn't really have much of an online presence until 2000, I don't know, seven, eight, or nine, somewhere in there. So, yeah. yeah. And Eric is a natural pro bodybuilder, powerlifter, published author, has a Bachelor of Science in Fitness and Wellness, and a Master's in Exercise Science and Sports Nutrition. And you're currently studying a PhD in strength and conditioning in New Zealand. So he's a bit of a genius and you're a bit of an all-around good guy. Um, I'd like oh, to <laughs> I'd like to preface the interview with um, the fact that Eric and the 3DMJ crew have been mentors of mine since eight eight or so years ago when I first started in the game. And I've learned a lot from Eric, just his podcasts, YouTube videos, muscle and strength pyramids. And with all that knowledge, I've then applied that to JPS and obviously have passed that on to our 15 coaches. And we, we work with quite a large number of people here in Australia. And, you know, we do up to 600 sessions a week. And I'm very thankful for Eric's work and... I'd just like to, you know, ask you first and foremost, Eric, did you ever predict that the magnitude of the impact you could have had on the lifting community? Uh, no, I would say that. Uh, I didn't predict it, but I did I did plan for it to some degree. This is, things have been going according to plan, which is a, a rare occurrence in life. <laughs> I don't take you as someone who would uh, just hope for the best, throw a stone and hope for the best. Well, I, I would say that I um, I plan and 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 uh, and then I hope for the best. But it, it wasn't just like I was like, yeah, we'll see what happens. You know, like I definitely um, interesting, unique story. You mentioned my bachelor's in fitness and wellness. For my final year of that course, I had a um, I can't remember the exact name of the course, but it was basically a fitness business or fitness marketing class, and I wrote the basically the business plan and the marketing strategy for 3DMJ before 3DMJ started. Oh, wow. And that was part of my like pitch to, yeah. um, to Alberto and, and uh, Brad and Jeff when we first got the thing going. So That's pretty cool. So you actually planned it from the start. And when did you write that plan? What year was that? Early 2009. And 3DMJ kicked off, was it the following year? It actually started at the end of 2009. Um Berto and I were both full steam ahead because we had been friends since 2007. He was already coaching people, uh, and he thought I would be a good. Um, he, he had a lot of respect for me, and, and uh, even though I was really just some snot-nosed kid who had, didn't have a pro card and was working on my bachelor's degree, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, I think he he respected me for all the reasons that he does. But um, anyway, so then we approached Jeff, and then later. Uh, later in that year, maybe early 2010, I can't remember the exact timeline, uh, Brad, who were older bodybuilders, more experienced, um, and had been in the game a long time, and we thought that our enthusiasm, knowledge, and uh, vision would be complemented very well with their uh, pragmatism, experience, and maturity, and uh, it was. 
So, yeah. Yeah, it's very um, interesting how the three of you have such, I guess, you know, different backgrounds and how it is uh, complementary to each of your, you know, skill set and knowledge base. Um, but where did, you know, you guys, as you started 3DMJ, where did you see that going? Did you think that they would ever get to a point where it was a worldwide, you know, coaching service that it is today? Um. I, I wanted it to get there. I remember our meetings in 2010, and I was working nearly full time as a personal trainer. Um, Berto was working as a part of the, um, I want to say, Bay Area Unified School District as a like an after aftercare provider, after school care provider. Um, Jeff was receiving more or less a, a pension or a separation package after uh, an auto plant closed down that he was working in. And uh, Brad owned a gym and also did some moonlighting as a, uh, a CAT scan tech or a imaging yeah. tech. I don't want to get which which device wrong. So all of us had full-time jobs in addition to 3DMJ. And I remember Brad specifically, I think at the end of 2009, he was like, huh, we made $4,000 this year. Like, and it was it was exciting, you know, because it was something that we did almost as a hobby the uh, on the side. And that we went to every single show and... Uh, you know, we would spend late nights uh, over at Jeff's house working on the website over the Yola platform, which is old school stuff. Mm. Um, and, you know, really doing a lot of work uh, with minimal payoff and um, only getting a small following to kind of start rolling. And um, it wasn't until 2011 that we could started to realize that this could become our primary income. And that was right around that point. Um, 2011, probably 2000, end of 2011, I want to say, is when the first of us started to make it work completely Sam's second job. Um, it was definitely a struggle. Um, I know that there, were, there was a point where um, I had to work full-time or almost full-time as a, as a teacher in a private uh, personal trainer institute while coaching full-time, while prepping, mm-hmm. all to save enough money to get to New Zealand. Um there's a time period where I think uh, Jeff actually had to declare bankruptcy before then getting the full time and selling his old home and now getting to the financial position he's at now. Uh, hopefully he didn't mind he's putting him on blast there. But um, the point is, is that there was definitely a low point for the for the business and for each of us financially where we weren't really sure how it was going to make it. To then um, now being, I would say, one of the more respected. Um, online coaching services in, in, in the realm of, you know, bodybuilding yeah. strength athletes that exists. Yeah, definitely. I, um, you know, obviously the fitness industry is quite a fickle, you know, industry and, you know, there is no financial stability, especially as you mentioned, when you're transitioning from, you know, a more stable income into what is the unknown, so to speak, of, you know, personal training, online coaching, all the rest of it. Um, but was there ever a time that you guys, you know, hit a brick wall or, you know, failed, so to speak, where you really started to question whether or not it'd be worth it? I would say no. I think, um, all of that was at the start as to what the feasibility was. And we were fortunate enough at the start that we loved it so much. If it had just stayed as this kind of Mm. side gig we did and, stayed more as the original model of being like this online magazine for natural bodybuilders and a yeah. place to give exposure. Cause it was all, it all grew out of Jeff Albert's uh, blog. 3d muscle journey was his, 
his return to the sport with a healthier mindset blog. And it basically just became a group blog. And then we would go to shows and cover the shows. And then when we finally decided to break it coaching, we decided we'd sponsor two athletes for free. So we were coaching them for free. So I, I, I knew in the back of my head and all of our heads to some degree, we thought this would become a career, but we were in no rush and we weren't discouraged because we weren't in a rush. We didn't have unrealistic, realistic expectations. Um, and then when it started to take off, that's where we actually had problems. There was a point where we kind of blew up in 2011 and we decided to have a waiting list. And that was a mistake because within eight months we had a waiting list of something like 300 people. Yeah. I think I was and on that waiting list. <laughs> apparently most, yeah. most people were at some point. <laughs> uh, and that was when we decided to start our Skype consultation program as, right. as a, a way of trying to find a way to provide some, some sort of service to these people. But, um, but, but also acknowledging the fact that we can't give week to week coaching to everyone without drastically sacrificing our, our mission statement. We yeah. could have, yeah, we could have given cookie cutters to everyone and destroyed our own name three years later as being it's, shitty coaches. It's a fine line, isn't it? You there? I think we are. Uh, you there, Eric? Hello? Yeah, you, you cut out just for a second. I'm, I'm not sure, but... All, all good. All good. Can you hear me? Um, I can. Um, yeah. So, obviously, you know, in the lifting community, we know that... You're very intelligent. You're pretty strong. You know, you've got your pro card. But what would you what would you say is your biggest weakness, if you had any? Oh, and you're, you're very handsome as well. Uh, <laughs> Maybe if you tell me more things that are my strength, and then I'll, then I'll come up with a weakness. So just just <laughs> go for five minutes. Well, I thought those were no, weaknesses. Um, <laughs> so I would say probably my biggest weakness is that I um, I take things personally. Uh, too easily. I think the internet is, is a place where you need to have a certain degree of thick skin. Mm. Um, and I t take things personally for other people too. Like if someone says something about someone I care about or, or um, says something that I know is untrue and it's a mischaracterization, I have a tough time letting that go. Mm. Um, so I have to limit my online exposure to some degree, control the way I, what I follow, what I don't, what platforms I use to degree just to sort of keep myself sane um, and positive, more importantly. Mm. So I'd say that's probably my biggest weakness. Someone like Alberto Nunez uh, is very, very self-grounded to the point where he only values the opinions of people who he has a deep, deep connection with who know him. Yeah. Um, and I, for some reason, get bothered by people who don't know me acting as though they do, and then especially if they have a, um, a perception of me that you know doesn't align with who I think I am. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Interesting, and I guess that'd be something you almost couldn't prepare for, um, you know, from an emotional intelligence standpoint. As obviously technology has evolved, as well as your business, that's something that you've really had to learn along the way. So that's really interesting. But one of my other questions I had for you was: we we know that the anabolic window, so to speak, has been closed thanks to you know uh, research by Aragon and the rest of the gang. And we know that in the lifting community, we overemphasize things. Is there anything that you think, you know, the natural bodybuilding community, powerlifting community is placing too much emphasis on at the moment without, um, too, it, it, without any, you know, premise, so to speak? Yeah, you know, uh, it, 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 this is something that 
happen often occurs, and, and uh, we, we place emphases on different things. I, I think the, the anabolic window is, is a useful one because it shows mm. how we went from it's all important to now it it's doesn't matter, it's closed. And I think, uh, I would say it, the window is, is broad, mm. and the window doesn't let in a lot of air. You know, like if, if the goal is to use the window to, to cool the home, uh, it's still, but it still does something, you know, and I think, uh, you know, what the magnitude of importance is just something that was a little, uh, that was miskewed before. And I think that's actually a common flaw. If, I, if I'm going to talk bigger picture, you, you may not accept this as a good answer, but I think the, um, the thing that we get wrong the most is that we're still seem to be in search of a silver bullet at all times. Um, and, um, when something is proven not to be a silver bullet, then it is just bad. So we tend to have this natural dichotomous thinking uh, about different fitness trends, uh, which is, I think, in and of itself, the biggest issue. And we, we have trouble putting them into uh, context and understanding which situations they're important. Um, but anyway, to more directly answer your question, uh, what do I? What, what is something right now that we're probably putting too much emphasis on? Um, I would say training frequency. Um, and yeah, not cool. that training frequency isn't important. In fact, it's been a huge key to success for a lot of people for, you know, moving from, say, intermediate to advanced. And I can say that for myself and a lot of my athletes. Well, but Well, everyone's gone from, you know, the bro split five, ten years ago mm-hmm. to trying to squat every day. Like, it's it's been pretty interesting to watch the shift in, yeah, frequency. Can you tell us more about why that's occurred? Yeah, for sure. I think... Um, I think for, for one, yeah, the, the, the science, quote-unquote, would, would suggest uh, that volume is very important for hypertrophy. However, how you distribute that volume uh, is also quite important. And there have been a slew of studies and a meta-analysis now, systematic review as well, that have suggested that uh, for both hypertrophy and strength, trying to get all your volume on each movement or body part only once per week uh, even with matched volume to something with a higher frequency and lower volume per session is inferior. Um, and it probably makes more sense to start pl- splitting up your volume over more sessions as you get a full day of recovery between, you get meals between. Uh, each individual session becomes shorter, so there's less fatigue in the latter, port, the latter part, so you can preserve quality. Um, but at the same time, um, even in the evidence-based community, a lot of people are pushing that to the nth degree and, and thinking that basically the mindset of more frequency is better. Um, when I think a better way of looking at frequency is that it is a useful construct to split up your volume. And we know that probably at least more than once per week uh, of training each body part is optimal. After that, it gets much murkier, you know, and uh, like even the famous quote unquote, um, uh, volume uh, or what is it the, uh, the Norwegian frequency study where they had the, the powerlifters who were training each lift uh, three times a week went to six times a week and they and they got huge people forget this is actually not a peer-reviewed published journal article it was an abstract at a conference not to say that the data isn't correct but it's just very limited data and I saw another recent abstract where they took much less trained individuals still trained individuals uh, do the exact same thing, and there wasn't any difference between the three and the six-week group. Uh, and I've also seen studies on untrained individuals where, you know, doubling their frequency and maintaining their volume didn't result in any kind of increase in um, 
in, in strength or hypertrophy. And I think the take home here is, well, okay, then, then why? Why is it seeming to be more effective in certain populations and not others? And if you look at some of the studies on, say, like two-a-days versus one-a-days or uh, going to a three-day-per-week body part split from a one, like uh, Brad Schoenfeld's study, they're all done on pretty moderately well-trained individuals. Um, so if you think about it in terms of if the stress you experience is a combination of the volume and intensity, uh, you, you have to do a certain amount of stress for you to be required, or not required, to, for you to benefit from spreading it out over multiple days. Like if you're only going to do five sets of bench per week, do you really need to do five days of bench where you only, you know, do one set per day? Probably not, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, I, I think because of data that's not appropriate for us to use to make a conclusion, uh, like for the example that uh, more advanced lifters have a shorter peak in MPS in response to training, people have gone, okay, therefore I need to train every day. And that's a big leap based on a small data point, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, what about the, the, the joint recovery? Uh, yeah. What about the psychological side of things of, of getting burned out from trying to train every day? Essentially, um, you know, all the rest of it, yeah. Sure. I mean, there, there's a lot of different things that are, that are going on in recovering in our body besides simply the deposition of proteins into our muscles, right, that, that are affected uh, by training. Uh, how long does, does the, you know, when, when you train, there's a, there's a decline in force production before it comes back, right? So do you want to be training that same movement uh, in, in a very frequent time period? Or maybe you need to, or maybe you can, but it just needs to be a purposely lower intensity session. So I think... Uh, um, High frequency can have a, a very important role in programming if you use it kind of like a valve for volume. Yeah. And yet, you probably want to start with what we know is, is at least the, the, the bottom rung of optimal of training each body part or movement at least twice per week, depending on where you're to focus on strength or hypertrophy. But I do think we need to get out of the mindset of more frequency equals good yeah. uh, and without any kind of caveat or context. That's extremely interesting um, that you... Yeah, can give it some context and some common sense. Um, you spoke of evidence-based community. Um, mm. Now, obviously, we know that evidence-based means applying research with experience to the client's needs or your individual needs, which I think to a large part is why a lot of the literature you know, doesn't necessarily work in theory because there's so many different individuals mm. responding in so many different ways. Um, but if you had to prioritize one, for personal trainers or coaches or athletes, um, forget people you know such as yourself who are doing a masters. People in the trenches actually are trying to apply the research. What do you give the greatest priority to, out of the three factors in evidence based? You know, because everyone claims they're evidence based. You know, I think yeah, I think it's very important for people to understand uh, hierarchy of evidence. You know, this is something I went over in one of my videos where. Um, in, in, within the scientific community, you'll, you'll typically see the pyramid, and the most important thing Why is, is meta-analysis. So? I just love pyramids, look man, alright? I'm part of the Illuminati, just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. So yeah, at the most important uh, portion of the, the pyramid, the, where we should place the most emphasis or weight on, uh, would be the meta-analysis, which is the study of studies. Um, which is a common problem in the, the fitness industry, or rather fitness research, exercise science, and nutrition both, is they're very underpowered. Um, 
So like if you see a study with, with four or five people in it, and even if they say, oh, P equals less than 0.05, which basically means supposedly yeah. that these findings are uh, could have only happened due to chance with a 5% chance or less. So you think that's pretty strong veracity. Uh, what you don't realize is that when you have such a low sample size, the potential for that being an error in and of itself is, is, is pretty high. So a meta-analysis is a way of sidestepping that is once you have a, enough studies, you can pull them all together and essentially every participant in all those studies becomes your total uh, N. So I like to make my primary decisions based off of multiple meta-analyses. That, that's what, those are my rock-solid feelings. Like I know volumes related to hypertrophy. I know higher intensity is going to make you stronger. I know, um, you know, protein, protein intake in the off season is probably going to not be more helpful after 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kg kind of thing. Yeah. Um, th those are the, the, the big nuggets. Um, after that, then comes the RCTs, the well-done studies, which are a part of those meta-analyses. Uh, after that comes more like your case control studies and your case studies themselves, where there may or may not be a control group or it's just looking at associations within a single person. So I think, um, that's all good and dandy if you're if you're some research and who has regular access to it and is reading research and interpreting it. Um, but if you're someone who is, let's say, just a trainer, just an athlete who uh, wants to try to uh, get a good understanding of this information and apply it, you will often need some kind of media, uh, which is why people like me exist, you know, um, or your Alan Aragons or your yes. Brett Contreras or your sure. whoever, you know people who basically um, do the best they can to take the totality of the evidence, interpret it, and put it into practice for others. Um, and I th think for that, then the, the person needs to understand, the person being the consumer, um, how to identify someone who follows the scientific principles, right? How do you identify someone who tries to take their own biases out of it, whose primary purpose is not just to sell you something, um, and who isn't selling something sexy, they're, they're selling, you know, basically information, you know. Um, and I'm actually, uh, I've written a, a pretty good article that's going to come out pretty soon about the philosophy and the attitude behind someone who is doing that. Um, and you should basically see someone who is not speaking in superlatives, so not, not, not claiming that something is, 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 is a gift from God or is the silver bullet because that truly does not exist. And that is a marketing strategy. Um, and you want to be looking for someone who does not immediately attack, uh, alternate, alternative ideas. Um, and that's not to be confused with someone who goes after pseudoscience. Like if someone's going after, you know, food babe, cause she just came out and said, Hey, everyone should do, you know, the juice cleanse diet. And you realize that it's a micronutrient deficient diet. You don't want your mother to do, you know, me making a Facebook post about that. It's not necessarily the same. Yeah. As someone saying, hey, I heard time under tension is really important. And then you're going, you're an idiot. Look at this study. You know, that's not a, a true scientific attitude. Uh, that's not, that's basically an ad hominem, ad hominem attack. That condescending attitude is a subtle version of a personal attack, which is used to dis discourage dissent and discourage discussion, uh, which is wholly unscientific in my opinion. So that's, you want to yeah. see someone who treats others with respect in terms of when there's intellectual discussions and disagreement. Um, and you want to see someone who prizes being objective over all else as part of their, their ethos. Um, and then ideally someone who has some, some level of experience with the research and application. You don't want a pure scientist 
Uh, I mean, they're great for what they do, but a pure scientist who's never been a trainer or has never been an athlete um, is going to have a little bit of trouble interpreting and translating it. Uh, likewise, a pure athlete who's never been in, 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 in science, he might know what works, but he might not know why it works or how to better tweak it. So I think ideally you want someone who has a, has a blend of those two yeah. backgrounds. And do you think that with the whole, you know, I guess evidence-based movement and, you know, focus on, you know, scientific, you know, um, evidence being applied to personal training, do you think we're getting any closer to bridging that gap or do you think that we're getting further and further away from, you know, the exercise scientists and the dietitians and the, you know, physiotherapists who have all the science, they, you know, they get anatomy, they get it all. Um, and then the personal trainers who are, you know, quite unqualified, so to speak, um, to then apply, you know, what they, what little they know to their clients. Do you think we're getting closer? I, 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 I tend to be a bit of an optimist and I see what I create, you know, because I'm, because my, my job is to try to bridge that gap, I obviously am seeing the connection. So I, I don't know how objective I can be about that globally. But I do think it's getting better because the things that exist now did not exist when I was coming up as a personal trainer. There was no Alan Aragon's research review. Uh, there weren't, there wasn't like Omar Isa's YouTube channel, which was, you know, with 500,000 people watching, or almost 600,000 now, who just want, uh, you know, evidence based information. Um, but yeah, I mean, now, these days, are a bunch of different research reviews that, that you can subscribe to. I think where the gap might be is that you have to be someone who knows that is something that you, you need to pursue, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there's a lot of personal trainers, and they may just... Right, you, ha you have to have some level of understanding that that is something you should even be going after, uh, which is not a, a given, you know? So... Um, there needs to be something inherent in the way that we educate personal trainers that makes continuing education of a certain type very important um, rather than just, you know, filling out the questionnaires. And the, yeah. there, there's easy ways to stay as a personal trainer and not be informed, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but yeah, I know that one, for it? those who are aware that they need to seek out that information, there's way more resources now than there yeah. used to be. Yeah, that's a good answer. One of my questions I had for you, Eric, was um, saw in one of your YouTube videos or podcasts that you were dabbling with some weightlifting. Um, my question to you is two part. Why did you start? That was short. And why did you stop? <laughs> Good question. Um, so I started because it's awesome. You know, uh, I think weightlifting. I remember I, I went to a powerlifting meet back with Birdo in two. 2008 or nine, and there was a group of guys from a weightlifting club who came to do the powerlifting meet kind of in their off-season just to build some strength, and uh, they all had rock-bottom high-bar squats, which stood out, but they were still pretty strong for their size. Uh, no bench to speak of, and um, they didn't know what it was like to max out on deadlifts. They all pulled conventional with relatively low hips, and you could tell that they were used to like doing clean pulls. Yeah. But it was still pretty cool because these are guys who can, you know, do things that our bodies can't even get into position on, you know, yeah. an overhead squat or, you know, rock bottom snatch or clean. Um, so it was always something I was fascinated with. I had a lot of respect for it. Um, and I just never really had the, the opportunity to learn it. And when I knew that I was going to be going to New Zealand, where I am now, to uh, study strength and conditioning uh, in a more broader sense, uh, outside of just being basically a bodybuilding powerlifting specialist, 
I wanted to get a little bit more of a broader education, understand sports science and strength conditioning as a whole. And I thought, you know, I should be pretty familiar with the Olympic lifts. So in 2011, before I left, or I guess 2012 and 11, right, kind of at the end and the beginning, I started getting some Olympic weightlifting coaching from a local guy named uh, Chip Conrad at uh, Body Tribe in Sacramento. Uh, and then I did the uh, USAW, USA Weightlifting Level 1 certification uh, at California Strength back in 2012, relatively popular gym. Uh, and then when I arrived in New Zealand, I pretty quickly contacted a guy named Adam Story, who, who is the head coach of uh, Weightlifting New Zealand, or he's been selected a couple times to go to the Olympics. Uh, really good guy, um, and happened to be in the same building where my AUT uh, campus was, where we had basically like the, it's kind of like AIS, if you will, yeah. like it's the High Performance yeah. Sport New Zealand, and uh, and our university are all there doing doing research together. So anyway, I, I trained and still train at North Sport Olympic Weightlifting. Um, did Olympic weightlifting for a little over a year uh, before my hips started playing up. And it was the combination of high volume, high frequency um, Olympic weightlifting to a very low depth, low hip angle, along with very heavy low bar squatting, uh, where I started to get my hips playing up. And I, I got diagnosed with, what, with what's called FAI, yeah. or femoral acetabular impingement. Um, which is essentially, if this is for those who can actually see this, if this is your hip socket, your acetabulum, this is the femur, this is the neck of your femur, uh, going very, very, very deep, if you don't have the, the right shape uh, of hips genetically, and having that at a high velocity with heavy load, you get bone on bone contact, and eventually I tore my labrum on my left side. Um, and as those who remember Wolf's Law from, from uh, anatomy and physiology, when bone gets contacted or, or gets force driven through it, more bone forms along those lines. So basically a spur generates on both the lip of the acetabulum and the neck of the femurs so that your range of motion gets further sh shortened the more you do it. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what was going on at first, but eventually I realized it got imaging done, got diagnosed with FAI. Did you have uh, surgery? And I just, say again? Did you have surgery? It's very common for people with FAI to have labral uh, repair and stuff. I am scheduled to have surgery in just less than a month, actually. Mm. Yeah. That'll, so uh, it's quite a, yeah. what's the recovery process for that? You know, it, I've got one of the, the best surgeons is located for this, this type of surgery here in New Zealand, again, in the same sporting facility. It's mm -hmm. kind of like the, the Mecca of New Zealand sport. Um, so, uh, Matt Brick, and he's going to be doing my surgery, uh, in end of February. Uh, typically what happens is it's about six weeks where you can only do like cycling and mobility drills, like uh, that, that's probably even too aggressive a word to yeah. describe what it is. But like standing leg circles and, mm. and things like that, uh, I can train upper body. Uh, and then after the six-week mark, I could start doing limited range of motion, limited load, uh, lower body movements. I will probably be doing things like EMS, like electrical mu muscle simulation, and potentially blood flow restriction as early as I can. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, some of the quad and hamstring muscles cross the hip, you know. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so that, that that I have to be careful there. Um, but it's it'd be going to be bilateral, um, not totally open me up, but kind of orthoscopic. They go in, they, re they retract my, my bone, patch up the labrum on the left side, and uh, then within about four months, most people are fully recovered and close to where they were before. Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of pretty amazing recoveries. Um, Tr Tracy Mavericks is a New Zealand lifter who just went to the Olympics in 2016. She got the surgery, I want to say, a year or two prior to that. Um, That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's definitely not a life sentence. 
yeah. uh, to be never able to squat again. In fact, I'm really looking forward to it because it means I'll be able to low bar squat again. I probably will do it very low in volume to start yeah. and really ease back into it and be intelligent. But it may mean I could get back into Olympic weightlifting. Although I wasn't very good anyway. So we'll, we'll see. I'm just happy to be able to squat again. Yeah. Right, front squat. Well, one of my questions uh, on that was, you know, in terms of you having to stop Olympic weightlifting, what did you learn from that? And was there anything that, you know, you could then carry over to powerlifting, bodybuilding, um, mm. from the lessons that you learned in a different discipline? Yeah, you know, that's funny. This actually goes back to the frequency conversation mm. um, because the traditional lore in bodybuilding and, and, and powerlifting is that frequency is kind of capped at twice per week per exercise. You know, if you think about the most common Western world um, programs, like, you know, there, there may be the upper lower splits, like fat, you know, was about was high, was high, high frequency, you know, late arms, yeah. upper lower basically, or, or upper lower and then body parts that everything got hit twice. And then west side with your uh, yeah, twice a week squatting yeah. or, or twice a week squat or deadlift and twice a week benching was, was that was, that's about as high frequency as it got. Um, but the culture is a is a similar but different culture in Olympic weightlifting, uh, where the same rules don't exist, and it's just what people have always been doing. And because Olympic weightlifting is not just exercises, but highly difficult skill based exercises that take years to master, um, people have always just done it more frequently. Mm, and you practice the skill. Exactly. Yeah. So, like the average amount, like once you get past the beginner stage, and if you take someone who has the time. Um, Average number of sessions per week is like six to ten per yeah. weightlifter. Yeah, and you're snatching and clean and jerking and probably three fourths of those, and and mm. then maybe half you're squatting and then doing clean pull and block from jerks and you know snatch pulls and variations, uh, you know drop snatches, all the same lifts all the time. And uh, on that, Eric, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah, because you're doing such high frequency, what percentage, um, you know, of one rep max are you lifting at for the most part? Yeah. Yeah. That's another important thing to remember is that these are all velocity dependent movements. So when they completed, it doesn't look like it was failure. Like you went on a squat, you don't grind through it. It yeah. still has to be completed at an adequate velocity for you to get underneath it, stand up with it. So, uh, I'll put it into terms that powerlifters and bodybuilders will understand. The most someone will probably clean and jerk would be, say, two-thirds of their deadlift, maybe, yeah. if they're really, really good, you know. Um, and snatch might be like 60% of their back squat. So you're using lighter weights as a result of the, difficult, the difficulty of the movements, yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and then, and then and the lifts all, themselves, like if you take game, a – I'm sorry, say again? I don't have extensive knowledge in Olympic weightlifting, but they are concentric-only movements, correct? Right, yeah. There's very little eccentric com component. Less You're muscle all, damage. Your weight's dropping around if you go near the gym. They dump it off at the top. Yep. Um, which means that there's less muscle damage to wear and tear from training. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you're seeing a lot of singles, doubles, and sometimes triples at loads that they will almost always get. And most of the misses you'll see in general training is just because they, they didn't do it right and they got out of position, which is a very common occurrence. And you'll see, depending on the style, you know, there's some who follow a slightly more Bulgarian approach. Uh, the intensity is typically follows a linear trend throughout the year towards competition, but there's not huge long blocks where you're going for max snatches and max clean and jerks on a regular basis. So 
Yeah. Yeah. Like any intelligent approach, if the frequency is going to be high, then you have to moderate the intensity and or volume. That's very interesting. And it sort of brings me to my next question regarding dual athletes. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that makes you a triathlete. <laughs> yeah. for, for a while. And, for, yeah, a while. for a while, yeah. Um, so obviously, 3DMJ work with a lot of dual athletes who transition between powerlifting and bodybuilding. My question to you, Eric, is how do you guys um, you use both sports to the advantage of one or another? And do you or the athlete you know, prioritize or get to choose which one they want to focus on more? And how do you work that into their long-term plan? Well, it's, it's always the athlete's choice. You know, if, yeah. if, if I was to characterize our model of coaching, it would be like autonomous supported, which is actually, if you want to look that up, it's a thing. But yeah. um, basically, we, um, they are in the driver's seat. Uh, it's an interesting relationship. You know, Mike T, Mike Tuchere actually conceptualizes very well. If you understand how sports teams are owned and managed, he says that uh, the athlete uh, has an interesting role. They're both the athlete and the owner, while their coach is like the general manager. Yeah. Because the athlete can fire you, right? Uh, yet they also are supposed to do what you're saying. So it, it is an interesting relationship when, you, when you're coaching an individual sport, um, when you're not part of some, some program. Like yeah. we are, we have our own businesses, and people come to us, uh, and they say, I want to work with you. Uh, and they can say whether they're, they're you're not doing what they want. Likewise, you can also say, you're not doing what I want. I want to fire you. And I would say, more often than we get fired, we fire our clients yeah. in our experience. Um, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I just mean when you know two, two people don't click, those expectations aren't being met, et cetera, et cetera. But so uh, the athlete is in charge of what they want to do, and they tell us their goals. Now, often that doesn't necessarily mean that their actions always match up with what they say their goals are. So there are a lot of conversations where they go, well, hey, hey, Timmy, you know, you told me that you really, really wanted to be a bodybuilder. And I noticed that this season, you know, you've been really keeping your weight low in this off season so that you can stay in the 83 kilo class. That's only, you know, four kilos over stage weight. I understand you like being strong and you're doing pretty well, but I do think this is going to have a negative impact on your bodybuilding career. Are you more focused on powerlifting now or bodybuilding? And they often go, uh, damn it, coach, you're right. I want to have my cake and eat it too. And so there can be conflicts and it's just important to have a strong mission statement to begin with. And then it is the coach's job to help them be accountable to that and to help them think about the times when maybe they're subverting their long-term goals with their short-term desires, Yeah, you know, which is not uncommon at all. That's, uh, yeah, really interesting how you manage both uh, powerlifters and bodybuilders. And that, you know, leads me to my next question. So we know that strength and size are very similar, very similar physical qualities in a very broad sense, but from a purely scientific standpoint... Training for one means that there's a trade-off for the other, you know, due to specificity. Um, do you think that when dual athletes focus on, you know, say powerlifting over, you know, higher volume phases in their off-season, that it can conflict with their overarching goal of being a bodybuilder? Um, and obviously, conversely, do you think the powerlifters who do bodybuilding in their, you know, so to speak, off-seasons uh, could be counterintuitive because they may not be practicing the skill of the big three enough for, you know, at higher mm. intensities. What are your thoughts on that? I would like to think we are specialists in doing this in such a way where you are trading off minimally yeah. um, and getting a net total benefit. Um, so scientifically, what it, what it comes down to is that volume is the thing that's closest associated with 
with hypertrophy. Not that more volume is always better, uh, but the thing that should be behind your progressive overload over your career should should be volume. Sometimes people will get, get confused and be like, well, I didn't do more volume than last week. And I'm like, that's just because you're doing a linear periodization. That, that doesn't matter. But next year, hopefully, you're doing a little bit more volume. Um, so that means if you are a bodybuilder competing in powerlifting in your off-season, uh, you still need to be doing an appropriate amount of volume for your training age. Mm-hmm. However, you just want to make sure that some of it comes from the squat bench and the deadlift, which you work into your program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to give you kind of different categories of thinking, if you're a bodybuilder who's like, hey, I'm going to compete in powerlifting, A, it's fun, B, it gives me focused on the off-season, and C, having a weight class limit that is it's perfect so that I have a little bit of accountability for how heavy I let myself get. Those are all the pros. Great. I'm going to train like a bodybuilder. However, I'm just going to include uh, the big three in my exercise selection. Um, and those specific exercises will be done a little bit heavier, closer to a meet to help okay. me peak. Um, and it's still it gets that much harder when you are a true dual athlete, though. Yeah. And Sorry, it's still that long-term thinking with so long as volume's going up year to year, I'm a bodybuilder, per se. Yeah. More or less, yeah. So long as it, you know you're, of course you you got accessory movements in there. The way a bodybuilder who trains for power or the way a bodybuilder who competes in powerlifting trains, they still do that um, is, Right, exactly. It's going to look different than than, than yeah. your pure powerlifter who is like, why would I do a cap race? Yeah, you know yeah. that kind of. So. Um, I watched your recent interview with Ian McCarthy, which I thought was really well done. And you spoke about flexible dieting for bodybuilders being the path less warped. Um, but is there ever a point when you're coaching someone and you need to get a specific result in a specific time frame that you simply default to you know, dieting heuristics and what is easier, just letting them eat clean purely so that they can get on stage? And do you give up fighting that good fight, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I think, I think a good way to look at it is... Um the amount of flexibility that needs to be introduced is very much directed by the athlete. Like, if they are totally fine and have the habit of eating mostly quote-unquote clean foods, that's fine. It's only an issue uh, when that mindset causes them problems. Like, if they have to travel or if they are outside of their environment or if I find out their food list is such a small list of items that they're actually probably micronutrient deficient somewhere. That's the only time I, I really try to encourage someone to be more flexible or if that behavior leads them towards struggling when the diet is over uh, because they don't follow that which lets you know that maybe they actually are having cravings despite so the two uh, i guess saying like oh no i just enjoy broccoli and chicken yes yeah, so the two things that you're considering are health and then adherence are they the two under uh, yeah. underlying yep yeah yeah Okay. And sometimes it'll be on the very end of the other end of the spectrum where someone is incredibly flexible and they're working on all kinds of things, uh, and it's always highly palatable foods, always a high variety. Uh, as they get deeper into prep, their prep time in the kitchen is going higher and higher and higher. Yeah. And I start to encourage them to start eating lower palatable foods, more single item food ingredients, taking less time in the kitchen, and trying not to feed the food preoccupation that's going yeah. to happen anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that the diet becomes less of a mental stress Context, and they're feeling right. a little more satiated, at least acutely. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really interesting, the two contrasting you know, athletes that you have to deal with. But we know that IFYM you know, and learning how to track food, calories, macros is an investment and we know that it mm. takes time. There's like a large learning curve that occurs when we have to you know, start learning what's in our food and the composition of our food. Um, and that obviously humans are helped 
terrible with delayed gratification. But yeah. how do you, as a coach, get people to you know prioritize this as, at the expense of short-term gains? Like, how do you deal with that? Because that's a, yeah. that's a problem that you know we as coaches, especially with general po- the general population, um, you know, struggle with. It's very difficult to get them to you know buy into the process from the onset. Sure, and it's got to be customized to the individual. I think the biggest shortfall of it, if it fits your macros, is most people uh, will just they'll supply it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Like here, all you need to do is hit these three numbers, and you'll be sweet. Um, when you're talking to someone who doesn't know the difference between protein and carbohydrate, like they actually do not know what the macronutrients are, how to track them, and they've never looked at the back of a food label. So with someone like that, you need to simply start with having them eating exactly the same way they have been and just putting pen to paper or you know fingers to keys and just tracking what they eat and start becoming aware of the calorie, protein, carbon, fat amounts in foods without actually trying to modify anything. And then spending time just on the educational side so they know what the fun- basic function of these are in the body. Uh, and then once that habit is there, once they become aware of their eating, and this will often actually change the way they eat, just having them track to start uh, they're much less likely to grab the donut at work if they have to write it down. Um, once they become aware emotionally and intellectually of what they're doing and why, that's when modification becomes a lot easier. Yeah. And I think a lot of people start with the assumption that that's already there, yeah. uh, when it most of the time is not, at least when there's a problem. So that's key. Uh, and then taking it step by step, not starting with, okay, you have to hit these macros bang on, but let's try to keep our protein at X amount and hit a calorie range to start. Yeah. And see how we go. It's almost like a so, modified IIFYM for you know for beginners, so to speak. Exactly. Now that brings me to my next question, which is pertaining to what you started discussing with Ian. You know, um, in terms of the dieting continuum, and how you know we often start with really rigid and restrictive diet because we become more aware of our health and we just want to you know make change, cut out carbs, reduce calorie intake, do more exercise, but we have little understanding of what we're doing. Then we start to transition into, oh shit, now I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I know about calories, macros, and you know, more flexible approach. But then obviously you spoke about the end goal being you know, intuitive eating. Can you, you know, share with us how you've applied that to yourself in a practical sense and how you've applied that to a client or you know, when does one then say, hey, I'm ready to start, you know, intuitively eating? And does such thing even exist? Like, you know, because our homeostatic drive doesn't necessarily let us eat intuitively, so to speak. Right. So, yeah, that, that homeostatic drive probably works great when we had spears and hides on our body yeah. and food was few and far between and half the time would eat us. Yeah. Um, but that homeostatic drive does not seem to work well in the modern built environment. Uh, where the equivalent of having a hide and a spear and chasing a wildebeest is getting in your car and going to Taco Bell at 1 a.m. Yeah. So, um, so what does that mean? It means that we do need to have some experience and um, learned behaviors in place before we can go towards quote-unquote intuitive eating. Mm. So it's learning something new and then being intuitive based on those learned behaviors. So my personal experience, which you asked about, was that I had tracked uh, my macros and followed them, including some eating out in the off-season, uh, relatively balanced uh, every once in a while, um, for like seven years, from 2000, uh, no, five years, 
sorry, from 2007 to 2012. And at a certain point, I asked myself, like, well, why, why am I still tracking? You know, and um, I, at the time, because it was such a new concept, this whole if it fits your macros kind of approach, it seemed like the holy grail to me because I, I came from a much more rigid, uh, clean and dirty bodybuilding yeah. style background. So it was much more flexible than I was used to. But compared to the average person, I was highly rigid. I was putting on a pedestal these three numbers. Um, I would eat according to them and only worked within a 24-hour period, et cetera, et cetera. And I had forgotten what hunger and satiety felt like. So I decided I needed to, especially when I moved to New Zealand, I knew that I'd be exposed to different food choices and have to kind of re rethink the way I eat anyway. Different, um, different priorities I decided as to well. Say again? Different priorities, I presume, you know, when you're going there to study a master's as opposed to, you know, competing. Yeah, well, that, that too. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm going to take time off competing just because it's a smart thing to do while you're doing your PhD to not be brain dead. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, yeah, for a number of reasons, it made sense to, to try a more intuitive approach while I was here. And sure enough, I found that the years of tracking, I, I can't not know what my calorie intake is for the day. I can't not know ballpark uh, what my, uh, my macronutrient breakdown is. Um, and more importantly is that once I started listening to my hunger and satiety signals, because I'm more familiar with them now, mm. uh, and I can associate them with the, the, the macronutrient targets that I was eating before and calorie levels, uh, I can maintain weight if I want to without much effort at all. Uh, it's not a very appropriate approach for cutting because eventually you get hungry and then uh, your signals aren't driving you towards homeostasis. They're driving you back towards homeostasis. Mm. Um, but for gaining weight, I find just trying to be full all the time and purposely eating a little more than I want. It's a good way to put on slow bulk. Um, for maintaining, it's a very effective tool. But I think a lot of people will promote intuitive eating without acknowledging that you really have to do the work on the front end to start to understand the calories and macronutrients and foods and associating that with the way it feels. So most of the time, it's going to take at least six months of dedicated yeah. tracking and, and being emotionally aware and analytical about your food before you can then uh, be intuitive. So it is an investment, what you said. On that, so you spoke about how before transitioning to intuitive eating, there needs to be you know a set of learned behaviors you know, in and habits in conjunction with obviously the knowledge about, you know, food composition, calories mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, have you found in your experience, you know, and obviously, you know, with what you know that, you know, it's very difficult to maintain those habits and behaviors when you're not aligned with tracking, so to speak, as once you pull that, you know, the app away or the food diary away, is it really difficult to uphold those behaviors and habits that you've learned? In your experience, you there? You cut out just right at the end there. So, is it difficult to uphold those habits when? When um, you've stopped using my fitness pal or a food diary and you know transition into intuitive oh, yeah. eating, does your environment and you know society and our culture? start making that harder to uphold those habits? Um, I found for me, no, and it depends on how you do it, and here's why. Um, if you are following a tracking model that means you never eat out, you weigh everything, and you only eat at home, then yes, because now there's not a requirement for, for you to, to weigh things and, and eat at home. Now you can start getting into a new environment, and then yes, you'll have new challenges. However, if you were someone who 
multiple times per week, say once or twice in the off season, uh, went out to eat and ballparked or used whatever you could find online to track. Uh, or you were someone who started to get into, okay, I can go 20% above on one day and then 20% lower on the next day or 10% lower on the next two days. It depends on how flexible the approach you came from was. So I do believe there should be a graded movement towards kind of this intuitive eating. So if you're someone who is still weighing every last grain of rice, uh, if you're someone who does not ever eat out because you, you can't know for sure uh, what the macronutrient composition is, just going straight to intuitive eating, even if you've been tracking for years, would probably be stressful. Um, what I would recommend instead would be, okay, just go to protein and calories and allow yourself one meal out uh, per week and give yourself a little broader range in your macros, say plus or minus 20 grams. Uh, and that would be a good stepping stone uh, towards then, once you got comfortable with that, trying to take a full-blown, quote-unquote, intuitive uh, eating position. And I also recommend that even when someone does go to what you were calling intuitive eating, is that they have uh, check-ins to make sure that they're on point. And the areas that they know they struggle with, that they've always you know, come up short in tracking and had to make an effort to, you know, yeah. to play catch-up at the end of the day or whatever, they keep a running tally in their head. So for me, for example, I keep a running tally of protein in my head yeah. Uh, yeah. to make sure I, I don't fall short by the end of the day. Because oddly enough, even as a bodybuilder and protein researcher, uh, that is the area that if I don't pay attention, to some degree, I will often fall a little short. So I have to make sure I get in my post-workout way shake, sneak a couple quest bars in, yeah. etc. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. And, you know, we talked about those three, I guess, overarching phases in our, you know, dieting and training life. And we know that periodization is extremely important, you know, from a training perspective. And obviously now we can start to see that it's very similar when it comes to nutrition. And you guys do this a lot with your bodybuilders. You have different phases within, you know, their prep, so to speak, such as diet breaks, maintenance phase, you know, small deficits, large deficits, and so forth. How do you incorporate the different phases into a prep? And, you know, do these phases need to align with a specific training phase? For example, does a diet break need to be, you know, aligned with a deload um, and so forth? Like, how do you guys go about that? That's a great question. So, yeah, we, we typically use diet breaks every four to eight weeks where we take a week at rough maintenance. Um, and is that, is that still strictly... Tracking calories, macros for bodybuilders. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So we we know we're eating a maintenance because we, we give yeah. them numbers to hit, just as though it was a diet. Yeah. 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 So it, it versus do whatever how you want for a week, which yeah. just turns into a binge week. So it's it's probably what it looks like from the client's perspective is hey, this week uh, your carbs, fat, and protein yeah. are going to go to X, Y, and Z, rather than woohoo diet break. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, a little different. Um, and it's normally very easy to implement because we are typically using refeeds, which are single days, mini diet breaks, if you will, yeah. single days at, um, at, at maintenance calories. So we will just say, Hey, this week, all days are refeeds, you know, yeah. uh, so that they, they have the same mentality of tracking weighing and all that stuff for a week. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it done every one to two months. Um, we will bring them forward earlier than we planned or, or delay them if things are going great or not so great, like if they're really suffering on the diet. Um, and we, we definitely incorporate that into the timeline for the diet. So diet breaks are built in for a number of reasons. Um, one is obviously adherence. Uh, you know, the conditioning standard in modern natural bodybuilding, of pretty much if you don't have striated glutes, you're not going to do well unless you're an absolute freak. That means longer dieting time. 
Mm. If you do a shorter dieting time, you can get striated glutes, but uh, your glutes will kind of look more like striated, you know, like you know, peas or something. So you, you need to actually maintain your muscle mass. Skin rabbit. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so yeah, so longer, longer diets, slower def, slow, uh, smaller deficits uh, tend, tend to preserve muscle much better. Uh, and then interspersing them with periods of maintenance is a great way to get a great week of training in. Um, if someone is absolutely beat to shit, you might want to give them a deload in concert with a diet break. Uh, if they're going really, really well and you know the diet break would be useful and it's kind of planned, I will, I will even give them a little bit harder of a week, you know, give them a little more, bit more volume that week, give, give them that kind of that off season feeling that can be very motivating. Yeah. Um, so you can get a, a slightly higher quality week of training in. Uh, during a diet break, if, if it's appropriate, um, and uh, as far as well. outside of diet breaks, kind of the diet periodization, um, typically we aim for a faster rate of weight loss earlier in the prep, and it slows down throughout. Um, so closer to maybe one percent of their body weight targeting loss per week for the first maybe third of prep, uh, and then at the very end we're looking at maybe 05 percent of their body mm. weight per week, and of course their their body weight's decreasing throughout. And the, uh, the rationale for that is that obviously when you have 30 pounds of fat to lose, you know, one pound is, is a 30th of that. But when you have 10 pounds of fat to lose, it's, it's, it's a 10th, you know, and, um, you can't expect to liberate at the same rate without risking uh, losing lean tissue as well. And have there ever right. been um, situations, sorry, Eric, um, where you have had to, I guess, sprint to the finish line? It happens more often than not where, you know, you'll hit a couple plateaus or a show date will get changed or the person will say, hey, my, my, bro my brother or my buddy is competing in the show in April. Can we make it? Um, and you might scamper a little bit. But a lot of the times, um, a lot of times if it's not the last show, sometimes we, we just try to remind the person, hey, you know, there are later shows in the year. We we're choosing to do the show knowing that we're not going to be in a peak condition or we can sprint to the show at the risk of potentially making you not want to do anything else yeah. the rest of the season. Because I yeah. can't tell you how many times I've got someone who has shows planned in, like, say, April, July, August, and, and November. And we start dieting in January. And April comes around, and they're freaking out because they're not shredded. And I'm saying, look, we can get shredded for April, but I guarantee you, you're not going to even make yeah. it to August, you know, uh, alone November. Some of them do. Uh, but the ones who are okay with the idea of coming in at 90% in April – getting a, uh, a good peak trial run and, you yeah. know, out of the way, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Getting some stage experience and posing if they're a newer competitor uh, are the ones who do better. Uh, the ones who do even better than that are the ones who just simply don't do the April show, you know. Um, but, you know, in the end, like I said, there people are in the end going to do what they want to do, and it's our role to try to help them make sure that aligns up with their goals and they do it in the healthiest and best way possible, so. Yeah. And obviously we know the... Um consequences of you know a contest prep physiologically and psychologically especially when body fat percentages get you know extremely low as they do and you know 3dmj have proposed the recovery diet as a you know substitute for the reverse diet and obviously the physiological reasons for that are pretty obvious you know increased body weight and you know you reverse a lot of the I guess you know adaptations that happen as we diet but post comp we know that hunger signaling hunger signaling is delayed even when you introduce more food 
you know, people are still ravenous. And I think it's, is it called hyperphagia? That's the phenomenon where there's some yeah. damage. Well, that's, that's the fancy word for over, overeating. Overeating, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that abnormal biological drive to consume more food, like, can you elaborate on this and its interplay, you know, with the psychological difficulties after a competition for athletes and how you guys as coaches manage that? Because it's really easy to, you know, say, here, go to maintenance calories. But that's not, sure. the, that's not the hard part with the post-comp, you know, diet. Anyone can do that. It's the, you know, psychological trauma of, you know, coming out of anorexia nervosa, essentially. Right, yeah. No, no, that, that's, you used a lot, of, a lot of key words that are important. So, um, bodybuilders have a lot of things in common with folks with anorexia nervosa, especially in mid-comp. Um, some of that is just the psychological profile of, of bodybuilders or the average bodybuilder is drawn to the sport. But a lot of that is actually biologically driven from dieting. Um, and a lot of the symptoms of anorexia nervosa go away once you can get them to eat. Uh, and it's not just, it's, it's causation going the way you don't expect it to. Um, so yeah, there are basically three factors on the physiological side of it, uh, that are causing a lot of the, the things we see. Um, that's loss of fat mass, that's loss of lead body mass, and that's the deficit imposed itself. Um, and you can correct part of that very quickly. Uh, you can get the, the calories right up and bodybuilders are going to do this if, with, with, if, if not, if left to their own devices very quickly. Um, and uh, some and, and the often the consequences that they gain way more body fat than they want and leads to depression or maybe even have to skip a whole season because they started because within six weeks after the show they're ten pounds heavier than when they started the prep and they can't even get they have to spend their whole off season dieting and that's what you want to avoid um, and the first proposed uh, way to address address that was to quote unquote reverse dieting uh, which you know takes a lot of different forms depending on who you're talking to but is typically characterized by a very slow reversal. Uh, like kind of the length of time it took to get down to the deficits, length of time you go back you up, think, sorry, and just, often results in the person staying in a deficit. Sorry, Eric, I'm just going to interrupt you really quickly because I've, I've wanted to ask you this for a while. Do you think that coaches capitalize on the vulnerability of bodybuilders with the whole reverse diet? Do you think that they took advantage of you know, bodybuilders in their most vulnerable state? No, I don't think so because it came internally from bodybuilders. I think the reverse diet, because uh, I remember people trying it before it was even a thing. Like Birdo, his first, his, his 2007 season, he started increasing like his carbs like five grams a week and he's just a freak and I yeah. actually do that. Because um, the reason is, is that you want to see, can I maintain this condition and, ma and gain muscle? It's something that we would all love to have happen and get my calories back up to a reasonable lo level. Everyone wants to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, and of course, they want to avoid getting just fat and sloppy. Um, so a lot of coaches experimented with ways to do this and they found a semi-efficacious way of doing it. Um, but uh, it, it, there's a lot of problems associated with the traditional model, which actually leaves you in a deficit for a while. You know, Because at the end of prep, typically people are in like a 300 to 600 calorie deficit on average per day. So if you're adding in, say, 15 to 60 calories a week, that's yeah. months before you're actually back in a, even at maintenance. Um, so I don't think that is helpful at all. And it doesn't actually work. I've, I've probably, I say nine out of 10, but it's probably higher than that. The people that it does not, who can't follow that, uh, to where they may be on paper on the days they track and able to do it. They're, they're in that, you know, steadily stepwise increase in calories, but on the days they're not able to do that, they binge. Yeah. Adherence um, is a massive issue. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the, if you look at all of the research on, 
um, the psychology of weight gain and um, the work by Westenhofer specifically where um, he identified the flexible and rigid dietary restraint models, which is where the, the root of flexible dieting came from. It's going, oh, hey, people who have a more flexible approach are more successful at weight loss and, and maintaining weight loss. Um, two things added together equal weight regain, and that's disinhibition and restraint, or rigid, rigid dietary restraint specifically. So disinhibition is just a fancy word for saying impulsivity and the susceptibility to environmental and social cues to make you eat, right? Bodybuilders normally have very low disinhibition. They're not going to be tempted by society to, to eat. It. They, they're, they're bodybuilders, right? They, they eat weird. They do weird things. They get on stage shredded. There's one time in their career where they are highly disinhibited, and that's immediately post-show, where they're no longer handcuffed, and they've just yeah. starved themselves to the point where that's they're right. exhibiting symptoms of anorexia nervosa. So the fact that they tend to, as a culture, we have a more rigid dietary approach. It's sometimes very extreme that, uh, that you can find out there. And at the end of the competition, we're highly dis disinhibited. Now you're going to get that weight regain. Um, so a lot of what we've been talking about, about making the diet more flexible, is a way to make the rigidity side of that go down. Mm. But the disinhibition, which is basically caused by that, yeah. right? So you can reduce the dis disinhibition and the rigidity by reducing the rigidity. Uh, and then the final thing that you need to do is basically kind of our recovery diet rather than a reverse diet is feeding the beast because it's there for a reason. You know, the reason why you're starving and you don't have satiety signals and you only have hunger signals uh, and your drive for food preoccupations through the roof is because you literally are in a semi-starved state. But if you understand that the only reason to have striding glutes or, you know, veins in your abs is to be on stage and that's not even a good place to gain muscle, get good sleep, have libido, it's not very acutely healthy. And for women, you may be in a state where you're not having a menstrual cycle, which is not healthy long-term for you know bone, bone mineral density. Um, you don't want to be that late. So what we do is we put someone into an aggressive surplus at the start, probably still less than if they're binging though. But it's in their control now, and it's certainly a lot. So you're much less likely to... No, you, yeah. Like if you were just dieting on 2,500 calories and now you're on 3,800 calories, it's a lot you're much less, less likely to binge. Yeah. Yeah. But if you were on dieting on 2,500 calories, now you're on 2,600 calories, you're probably going to binge, you know? So then as body fat is gained to a point where they're kind of like a pretty lean off-season state, like if we get a guy who's from 4 to 5% body fat to 9 to 10% body fat, he still looks great. He's still the envy of everyone on the beach, you know? Um, and his trainings come back up, and mentally he's feeling a lot better. And if this happens within six weeks – so many of those issues that are common among post-contest dieters are taken care of, but with about 10 pounds less of fat loss and with about three months less of time compared to the reverse diet and a whole lot less self-loathing because they've screwed up so many times. Yeah. So that, that is the idea, is that uh, you get someone with relative expedience up to a reasonably low, uh, low end of their settling point, and then you start to use those small adjustments to get them out of a big surplus into a small surplus, and you start in off-season only two months post-show versus right. half dieting, half not dieting for six yeah. months. Is there a, you know, time difference between when body fat, you know, returns to a relatively healthy level and then when satiety signaling and the preoccupation with food dissipates? Because from my experience with myself and athletes, even though body fat returns, um, there's the preoccupation with food and, you know, poor you know, hunger signaling even delayed like longer after that. 
Yeah, interestingly enough, one of the biggest signals for uh, having hunger signals return to norm is actually recovering all the lost lean body mass. Um, so it's not just fat mass, although fat mass does, does play a role. Some, some reviews will speculate not, some will, will speculate that it does. I think it must because fat is also a leptin signaler. Um, so I think fat mass plays a role, lean body mass plays a role, as does total food intake. Um, so regaining lean body mass is also very important. Uh, it's inevitable that you will lose some during a prep, and that may not even necessarily be muscle. But that's still a signal. Like uh, even your, your the mass to your organs goes down a little bit when you diet very yeah, hard because yeah. they're highly energetically costly. Yeah. You know, so you're probably getting some like liver atrophy while you while you diet. I'm not even a specialist in this area, but mm-hmm. definitely uh, your internal organs are going to shed as much mass as they can in the course of a diet, which is a strange thing to think about. But that is lean body mass loss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and once your body knows it is in a, a more uh, food available state they will regain that mass and your hunger signals will get a little more okay. reasonable. Uh, so regaining muscle, regaining lean, lean body mass, uh, are probably have a higher impact on your hunger signaling than actual just the fat mass. Although the fat mass does uh, play a big role yeah. as well, along with just the food intake itself. Yeah, that's really interesting. And obviously bodybuilders love talking about cardio, Eric. Um, and you, mm-hmm. Brad and Andrea, did a great job in your recent podcast. And you mentioned that there's less accuracy when inducing a deficit with cardio versus taking away food. Um, Why is this the case from a physiological standpoint? And in a practical sense, how do you then assess whether the, you know, magnitude of change is a result of cardio or, you know, diet-induced deficit? Talk to me. Right, yeah, yeah. So one of the uh, the most variable components of total energy expenditure is NEAT, or non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's the, everything we do, including me fidgeting with my hands while I talk to you now, uh, towards my postural control, uh, towards just you know how sedentary I am in my life. Um, anything that's not exercise, right? And uh, that is a highly compensatory factor. And depending on the individual, uh, some NEAT levels will go down more in response to cardio than others. And it will also go down in response to food. However, when you cut food, you know the amount that you've cut. Uh, With cardio, you're always a slave to the estimation device, right? Uh, And uh, it's probably wrong. Uh, However, if it's consistent, that's less of a big deal. But what you're forgetting is that when you implement, say, 400 calories of cardio, that's not just plus 400 to whatever your TDE was. Uh, you didn't, as I like to say, you didn't gain an extra hour or, th- or half an hour in your day to do that yeah. cardio. It replaced something. Yeah. Uh, however, when you cut food, it's not re- replacing something, right? Yeah. It's just gone. Yeah. Um, so you might have replaced uh, 100 calories that you might have burned in a half hour or an hour with 400 calories. So you're actually burning an additional 300. Yeah. Um, and, and when you start to math it out, you have to that do compensation, a, right? So some people. So when you math it out, you have to do a fair bit of cardio for it to really start to make a dent. Yeah. And some people, you know, their NEAT is affected negatively when they do cardio. They'll be, you know, more sedentary later on in the day. So how do you deal with that when you prescribe cardio to a bodybuilder, you know, and you're relying on that to induce a further deficit? Well, that, that's key right there. Is we typically don't rely on cardio. Um, we, we make cardio adjunct to the primary vehicle of fat loss being at the dietary deficit. So it's not uncommon that I'll have someone finish a prep with only two cardio days, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. 
Very cool. So obviously your you know uh, niche now is I guess in auto regulation, and we know that auto regulation is a great tool to manage fatigue and training readiness. Um, and you and Zordo see value in the in the RPE scale as a you know means to auto regulate training, especially between seven and ten. Um, but have you seen any major drawbacks in allowing your athletes to auto regulate their training? And how do you manage that as a coach? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, so the, the RPE scale that the Zordos and I done a lot of research on in in, in science uh, that originally came from um, Mike Tuchere. Uh, powerlifter extraordinary and coach basically it has uh shout out to mt and it has a relationship where every rpe point is one less repetition in reserve at least for the higher rpe values on this scale yeah um and like you mentioned we also have data showing that the accuracy is pretty good when you think you have anywhere from zero to three repetitions left and then it starts to degrade after that mm. um so uh from the research that i'm doing right now at the tail end of my phd on a group level, uh, uh, it doesn't seem that there's an inherent advantage to using the same exact program, but one group using percentage water um, and one group using RPE. However, on an individual level, there, there, there most likely is, yeah. you know, because we're always looking at needs. And that mirrors what my coaching experience is in that um, some people do fantastically well with it and others don't. Yeah. Um, so I think the people who are honest with themselves are, don't have a strong ego drive to lift heavy or aren't afraid of weights, because mm. uh, we've seen underestimations as well, uh, do really well with RPE. So if someone is accurate and has a relatively objective uh, self kind of perception in the gym, mm. uh, they can benefit greatly from RPE. Uh, they can regulate their training stress pretty damn well. Uh, and it, it is a skill like anything else. You can build it and practice it with time. Um, but for people who, the guy who will grind it out and call the five RPE every time, uh, they, they probably shouldn't be sticking with it. Likewise, the person who calls a seven or an eight every time, even when you can tell they have like 10 reps left in the tank, is probably not for them either. Uh, at least not yet. And they should probably train with uh, percentages for a while. So there's obviously a certain personality type that, you know, should steer clear of the RPE scale and some personalities will obviously do far better. Therefore, the individual level, it can be more beneficial than when looking at, at a group level. Cool. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. Um, I, I, will, I will say, though, that, that, that people people do change, though. So I hate to, yeah. I almost, I almost to steer clear of personality type because I know there were times yeah. in my career, time points in my career where RPE would have been bad for me and time points where now I'm much yeah. more mature and it's useful for me. And likewise, some of it is just experience, like uh, someone not who's not coming from a culture of lifting heavy, who gets into weightlifting, mm -hmm. or not in, from like a kind of male-dominated, like go hard or go home culture. Uh, that can either be a benefit in some ways, as you yeah. won't underestimate your RP, but also you might, or you won't overestimate your RP, rather. No, you won't underestimate, but you might overestimate, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that makes English sense. English is hard. <laughs> English is... And obviously, you know, coming back to that, uh, advanced athletes who have more training experience, time in the gym, greater, you know, self-awareness of, you know, their effort, you know, in a particular set are going to be more suited towards the RPS scale than, say, a beginner who has no lifting experience, doesn't know what a 6 feels like versus a 10, everything feels hard or easy, there's just no in-between. But how do you 
transition somebody into the RPE scale, you know, if they're an intermediate lifter? And when do you know that somebody's ready to start using it? I would say once someone is an intermediate in general, so if someone's still learning the ropes, it's probably just not appropriate. Yeah. Um, once someone has some experience under their belt, the step is to just have them use it as a tracking tool instead of a prescription tool, yeah. uh, which is a strong importance. So instead of telling someone, hey, I want you to do five reps at eight, uh, tell them, I want you to do you know, five by five at 75%, and at the end of each set, I want you to write down either how many sets, how many more reps you feel you could do, or use this RPE scale one to ten. Yeah. Um, and then you can even periodically have them, you know, check their accuracy, you know, uh, you could do an AMRAP at a given load, you know, uh, yeah. after only maybe doing one set and make sure it's not too many reps that would fatigue them. So you think they'd still be pretty close mm-hmm. and you can see whether they're within one or two, if they're in one with one or two, it's probably good, you know, cause you are going to be a little bit more excitable on an AMRAP than versus, a, yeah. Yeah. you know, a submaximal set mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and then as they're learning, there are also tools to help increase accuracy. I'm a big fan for people who tend to uh, push themselves too hard uh, to use video so they can see, no, I really was grinding there. Maybe I, that was a hierarchy than I thought. Uh, and same, same thing actually for people who underrated as well. They can mm-hmm. see that they didn't quite grind as much as they thought. So I, I personally think video is a, a useful adjunct when trying to create a visual connection to what it feels like, to what it looks like, to then yeah. be able to better rate it. And are you looking purely at bar speed when you're doing that? Technique? What are the... I think you got to look at the whole, you know, because um, in less experienced lifters, uh, technique will break down as they get nearer to failure. That's not necessarily the case in very experienced lifters. It'll just go slower. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, bar speed is definitely something you want to look at as velocity is correlated very strongly, obviously, with, with uh, okay. how close to failure you are. Um, so yeah, bar speed technique, but also you still, you still do want to think about how hard, how hard it felt this, despite bar speed. Mm. Some people tend to be very kind of go, no go lifters, uh, to where the stick will kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. And that's, that, uh, is something I wanted to ask you about as well is how much credence do you as a coach give to, you know, subjective ratings of effort versus objective? Like, you know, where... Where does the answer lie in terms of how you then program somebody's subsequent week or, you know, whether you increase volume intensity or decrease or whatever the case may be? So the question was, well, what, what indicators do I use, whether I'm going to increase or decrease volume or or how do I adjust it? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Basically, A, it comes down to performance. So I I might write someone a a four-week block with AMRAPs at the end on our primary lifts. And if those are progressing in some quantifiable amount, uh, then we're probably good, unless they're also completely wrecked, right? Um, Or if they're not going well, then I need to assess whether they felt A-OK on the program and it wasn't beating them down, or whether they were totally wrecked, Uh, which means a couple of things. Maybe the the program setup's fine if they're totally wrecked. I just need to actually make a more aggressive taper or an add a week to it and make that taper before they test to dump more fatigue. Uh, or if, or I just am giving them more volume than they need, uh, and, and then I might actually drop it down in the next block on whichever movements they felt they were most beat up by, um, or, or broadly, if it was more of a, uh, general feeling. Um, and yeah, I typically only increase volume if I'm not seeing reasonable progress on, on the list. Um, you know, and, uh, and that is going to be very much associated with the age of the lifter in terms of their training age. And how long the block was yeah. before before we got a quantifiable test. 
a lot of the times in, in less experienced lifters, I don't even need to do AMRAPs or 1RMs. Uh, they will just kind of have some wave loading or linear progression to where you can tell they're lifting heavier over time because yeah. uh, they're getting PBs in training. Even if they're submaximal, you don't need to be going to attend to hit a PB. Um, you know, a, the classic example is, you know, you do the three sets in the six to eight rep range and, you know, first week is three by eight, next week is three by seven, next week is three by six, deload, repeat, and each time it's, it's five pounds heavier uh, to start it and then it goes up to five pound increments. So it might be three by eight at 100, three by seven at 105, three by six at 110, and then you start the next one over at uh, 105 instead of 100. And in terms of deloads, would you deload that frequently with a beginner? And how does that scale as somebody's training experience increases? Do they need more frequent deloads uh, when they've been lifting for a long period of time? Typically, uh, the importance of deloads in increases with training age because you can do a lot more. Your work capacity is built up so much. Um, so it's a kind of a catch-22. Like you have increased your work capacity mm. to do the amount of volume you need to progress. Um, and that means you can handle the volume, but it feels like sometimes you're walking a little more of a tightrope, yeah. you know, because you have to push yourself quite hard. Uh, and a lot of the times, I actually recently experienced this myself. I just did an eight-week block with a mid-cycle test and then one rounds at the end, and I did really well on my mid-cycle test. 165 uh, bench? That, yeah, in my, my mid-cycle, I did AMRAP, so I got like 130, I got 137 and a half or seven, uh, yeah. and then I finished at a 165 touch-and-go bench. But for the end, I took a much more aggressive taper than I did in the mid-lock, and I had better max out. So it makes me think I was still performing well, but I had more fatigue than I thought, and actually yeah. dumping it all resulted in even better performance. Yeah. So it's, it's not as though I can't function as an advanced athlete without more deloads. It's just that um, there's more residual fatigue than I thought there was, mm. but I'm just used to performing with it, and that's fine. That's part of building work capacity, right? Yeah. Um, so that, and that, and that tells you that, Hey, if, let's say you've got a power lifter who's doing three show, three meets per year, maybe you don't do an aggressive peak for one or two, but the third, which is typically like an international level event, that is where you actually take a more aggressive, yeah. uh, taper, you know, um, you don't need someone at 110%. I know it's ironic to say that, but peak to his gills at his regionals, right? Cause that often does result in a slight decrease in work capacity. Mm. That's what I'm noticing now is after taking like an extra two days off the gym and doing a linear periodization yeah. uh, strategy where my intensity and volume or my volume was lower is I felt wrecked getting back into even my normal level of, of training the next week. I kind of had to then do an intro block, which yeah. is a little bit of a waste of time, yeah, but yeah. maybe worth it for peak and strength. And that's really interesting because would you then say that advanced athletes max adaptive volume is a lot closer to their MRV? meaning that they can overtrain a lot easier, hence the you know more regular deloads? If they have the actual time to do it, I think that is true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and if they've been intentionally trying to increase their volume. Um, because some, some people just have a very low threshold. Some advanced, level, advanced lifters, like I should probably shouldn't say advanced, I should say very talented mm. lifters, have always and always will have a low threshold for an adaptation. Like... They have to do less to get more than most of us, and that's why they're amazing. Yeah. Uh, and pushing up the volume on them and building huge Plastic. work capacity, it's just not necessary. Mm. you know. And uh, the slight improvement in, in the rate of progress, because they're going to have progress regardless, uh, is not worth the, the potential injury when they're progressing faster than yeah, you know, 99% of the population anyway. Um, 
you know, Jeff Alberts, I think, is a great example of this. Is he has a low threshold for what will make an improvement in him. And I, I myself and Berto, for example, have a pretty high threshold. So when you look at us, uh, we're both similarly and equally from training and need deloads and take them. Um, but the amount of work that myself and Berto are doing is a lot higher uh, than, than Jeff Alberts. Yeah, and that's yeah. just because he's a high responder. Yeah, very cool. And that, speaking of the uh, 3DMJ crew, to wrap up our chat today, what have you guys seen as the you know big game changers for you in terms of your practice since starting? Has there been anything in particular that you've been like, wow, this this has changed the game? Yeah, I, I would say one is, is is more systems, and that is that we have regular meetings every week, and we talk to each other, and we use each other as resources. I think um, coaches who don't have that, who are just stuck with themselves or don't have at least whether we see whether the audiences are not like mentors in the background or people you trust or, or someone you deal with. I think that's absolutely critical because no matter how much, you know, you, you can't really see outside of your own box and your perspective is always limited. And that's really useful to have a team to support you. Um, that's for general operations. Um, as far as just things that have been very useful for us, um, I would say diet breaks have been one of those, once, if there was one of those one small yeah, tricks and yeah. you know doctors hate them kind of thing, um, <laughs> diet breaks have actually been a big game changer. And I have much more consistently brought in people in good condition, maintaining a lot of the muscle mass in, in a less stressful way. Um, and but it doesn't uh, require game planning out of prep longer mm-hmm. in advance, uh, which is also something we started doing a while ago. Is we ideally get someone in the off season meet with them at least three months prior to their, their show, get them set up in the off season, make sure what they're doing makes sense. So that they start prep on the right foot, not doing yeah. six cardio days and, and having an un, un, unsystematic approach to weight training and not even knowing what macros are. You know, I think if we, we used to inherit a lot of uh, broken cases to, to start yeah. with and um, that is a really stressful experience as a coach where yeah, you, sure. you just can't fix it in the time the period you have with when they started. Yeah, sure. And what are your plans besides coming to Australia in June for 2017? What are you guys well, doing next? Well, that, that's, 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 after that, life's over. Well, you know, we've, we've done it. We've done it. I, uh, <laughs> I can retire. So, uh, no, I'm really, really looking forward uh, to coming out. Thank you for having us in June to My Melbourne. Um, and uh, after that, you know, it's, yeah, I, I will have probably just submitted my PhD and will be defending uh, to, to make it official after that. Um, so I'll be finishing up my PhD after you defend, you get basically revisions you have to do in your document. So I'll be probably working on those for a month or two. Um, I'm going to be coming out very soon with a, uh, a research review specifically targeted at strength athletes and bodybuilders called mass 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 monthly applications and strength sport. And that's with uh, Dr. Mike Zerdos and Greg Knuckles. That'll be coming out uh, literally in the next couple months. Cool. And we'll have a free issue for everyone to see kind of the style of it yeah. coming out soon. So that's that's on the, on the, on the menu. Um, and Andrew Morgan, myself, and An- and Andrea uh, will be working on a second edition of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids mid next year. So, so that's cool. Um, hip surgery. So for me as an athlete, uh, just working on rehabbing and trying to see if I can just become an absolute muscular bench presser since I can't use my legs. So <laughs> hopefully you'll see me in the Paralympics uh, <laughs> next next Olympics. Plenty of pipelines, eh? That's, um, yeah, man, that's going to be a big year for you and uh, the rest of the 3DMJ crew. Eric, 
I'd like to thank you for all that you do uh, for the natural bodybuilding and powerlifting community. Um, thank you for your time today and uh, really appreciate uh, what you've shared with the guys. Thank you. Hey, thank you for your time. Honor to be here. Appreciate it. No problem, man.